Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. What's the first brand that made an impact on you? I would say the first brand that made an impact on me was probably American Girl Dolls. <laughs> I was a Samantha girl, um, which is funny because she she was a kind of like hoity-toity. Um, but I, I just, I like Samantha. So I, I remember being so excited when I got Samantha's um, for Christmas one year. And I just, I don't think I'd ever felt that passionate about a, a brand before. I was so excited. Have you kept your dolls? They are in the attic at my parents' house. So yes, if I ever have a daughter, they're ready for it. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO podcast is Jenny Avalon-Lewis, the head of marketing for Uber North America. Uber is just nine years old, hard to believe, but listen to these stats. It's already 11 billion in revenue, 110 million users, 785 metro areas, and it's still growing. Jenny has been with Uber for six years, two-thirds of the life of the brand. She started as a marketing manager and worked her way up since then. And she's coming off quite a summer. She was promoted to head of marketing for North America nine months ago, and she recently got married. Since starting an Uber, Jenny has seen it all, from safety challenges to one of the largest IPOs ever, to now dealing with the national emergency of the coronavirus. This is my conversation with Jenny Avalon-Lewis. Welcome, Jenny, to the CMO Podcast. Thank you for spending your precious time, especially this week, with us. Because we're recording this podcast during the coronavirus national emergency, all businesses are massively affected. And I can only imagine what your life is like right now. So I just want you to share with our listeners as we open up the podcast, what are you learning in these unique times about leadership, about agility, about teamwork? Uh, because I understand we're recording this podcast and you're not in New York City anymore. You're actually working, working remote, as I am as well. So just what, what have you learned recently? It's changing by the minute, but what, what are you learning about leadership in these crazy times? Oh my gosh. It's been, it really has tested my leadership, our ways of working for how quickly we can respond. You know, I think it's, it's about being, you know, leading with empathy and um, being there for my team during a time that, you know, we have a ton that we need to get done. We have so much that we're trying to spin up really quickly, but also being really thoughtful around this is a scary time for all of us, you know, and this is a time that we need to be somewhat gentle with each other, available to each other, um, understand that all of us are processing this a little bit differently. Um, so I'm trying to really kind of go 
above and beyond since we are all working from home now um, to make myself available. I'm doing daily 30 minutes, just open time on the calendar. Anybody that wants to join, join. We're actually having a virtual lunch together as a team three times a week just to like see each other in a more casual environment as we would in the office. Um, but then from a business standpoint, you know, where Uber is really trying to think about, you know, what is our role within this and how do we be citizen leaders right now? How do we be there to support our community? How do we help flatten the curve? Um, how do we be a resource for governments and help them respond to this with the information and data that we uniquely have? And then how do we support drivers? Um, and how do we think about, um, you know, the individuals who rely on our platform to make a living? Um, and, you know, it, it's a really interesting time to be a marketer at Uber and to be a leader at Uber. Um, but I'm, I'm so proud of the way the team has really rallied and come together. It's amazing during these instances, just the grit and passion that you see. And I think that, you know, is just really telling right now. So as difficult as it is, you know, it's been, it's been a, um, a good time for the team, I think. I love your idea about virtual lunches three times a week. What a simple thought. And what a, what a great one as we're kind of all a bit lonely, you know, working uh, in, in, in our little rooms at home. So I love that idea. What, do you, what are your driver, drivers telling you? I mean, they're right in the middle of it. I mean, my daughter's an ICU nurse. She's also in the middle of it. These people who are on the front lines, you know, I think are amazingly courageous. So what are you hearing from your drivers? I think for, for them, it's, you know, they're, they're in many ways confused as well about, you know, how to respond and react to the situation. Um, many of them want to be there to support the community um, and be available for those that need Uber right now. Um, but they also need to keep their safety front of mind. So, you know, there's a few things that, that we're implementing to make sure that we are putting their safety first um, in terms of providing things like sanitizer and so on so that they're able to keep their their vehicles clean we've provided tips to riders so if they do need to travel and need to use uber that they're um you know following some of the best practices provided by the cdc and world health organization um but i think for them you know it's we're trying to be as supportive and be there for them so that they understand the resources that are at their disposal um through um, different programs that we offer, as well as making all drivers aware that if they are diagnosed with COVID, um, that you know they are able to self-isolate and that we they will receive financial assistance for up to 14 days um, while their account is on hold so that they're able to take care of themselves and um, put their own health and well-being first. Fantastic. Jenny, on a lighter note, on, I want to talk a little bit about your brand. I mean, you're a nine-year-old brand. And I guess your brand awareness is almost 100%. Is, am I right? Well, it depends. It depends on where in the world we're talking. In the U.S. and Canada, our brand awareness is quite high. You're, you're pretty close there. Um, you know, in the U.S., we've been, it's, it was our first market, San Francisco, May 2010. Um, and so we're, we're highly saturated across the U.S., but um, in varying degrees. So, um, yeah, it's been incredible just to watch that growth. How did you in nine years, and you've been there for six of them, how did you build a brand that has almost, you know, stands for the category, has nearly 100% awareness? I mean, I've worked on brands, you know, that have taken decades. I mean, I, Olay is a popular Procter & Gamble skincare brand. They're nowhere near that level of awareness. 
So how did you, how did you do it? Sure. You know, I, I wish that marketing could take credit for it, but ultimately I think it came down to product market fit. Um, you know, we acted on a consumer need that desperately needed fulfilling. And when you think about, you know, just 10 years ago, the fact that, you know, Uber and Lyft and these other rideshare categories didn't exist, um, and you, that you, you know, left so much of your transportation options to chance in many ways. Um, it's kind of crazy to think about how far we've come. So, you know, there's certainly a lot that marketing did to throw fuel on the fire and to help drive acquisition and awareness of the product so that other, that people were able to use it. But ultimately, you know, I think it comes down to building a product that people really wanted and that people really needed. Um, but you know, of course, marketing has to take a little bit of credit. <laughs> sure. So the big lesson is you had a massive unmet need that people didn't even know they had really in an enormous category transportation. And you, uh, and you had a, a really novel and easy and user-friendly way to, to solve it. I mean, I guess that's the lesson, right? And so much of what we work on as marketers is kind of incremental and not really filling in a massive need. And, and obviously, you've, uh, you've done a beautiful job of uh, continuing to innovate on it. And we'll talk about that a bit later. Mm -hmm. And I think exactly that, you know, and I, I do think, you know, looking back on some of our earlier chapters, a bit more acquisition focused. I think the, the challenge for us is we have we fit this need and um, and some of the early sort of, you know, entry points that we were seeing for consumers were travel, getting to and from airports, maybe going out at night um, so that they were able to, you know, have that extra beer or something. Um, but I think what we what we had to sort of ex it was the idea of expanding use cases and expanding people's minds to think about, you know, where could Uber fit into their life outside of the things that were initially in, intuitive, um, but start to think about Uber and think about how they could maybe change their behaviors. So instead of having to pay for a parking pass um, to go to the commuter rail and take the train in every day, um, maybe they just start taking Uber pool instead. Um, so. There was, it's sort of that combo of capturing people on the use case that they already know and are aware of, and then engaging them with new use cases that they might not have even thought of, and sort of opening their mind to how Uber could fit into their life in other ways. Uber versus Lyft. You know, the marketing world that, you know, you and I have grown up in, me longer than you, you know, has been really kind of defined by these interesting you know, brand-to-brand uh, -brand competition, you know, Coke versus Pepsi, Apple and Microsoft, uh, uh, Colgate and Crest, you know, a P&G kind of Colgate battle. Um, and there are so many other ones, Burger King, McDonald's, Airbus, Boeing. And now we have, and you've got to be one of the classics today, you know, Uber versus Lyft. What, what you know, what have you learned in that battle? Because obviously, you know, I'm a dual user. You know, I, I, I use both apps and, uh, and a lot of it is related to convenience and availability. So what have you learned in that battle? You're much larger than them, I know. Your market cap is much bigger. But what have you learned that others might be able to benefit from in terms of differentiating yourself, you know, being a more distinctive brand? Good question. 
Um, you know, I think the number one thing that I've learned is that competition is a great thing. Um, there is, I am probably one of the few people still at Uber that was here before Lyft was around. And, um, I will say since they became such a formidable competitor, you know, it's upped our game. It's had to make us sharper, smarter, faster, um, had to, you know, not let us rest on our laurels, but think, you know, how we can get ahead of the ball. Um, and I would say as well, you know, I think it's, it's both, it's both something I think individual that we should embrace, particularly as marketers, um, embrace competition, embrace us kind of pushing this industry and this category forward together. Um, and then I think the other piece of it is not, not getting too distracted by it. I think that was a big lesson for me over the course of my career at Uber is it's easy to just focus on, you know, what is our competitor doing? How do we keep up? How do we get ahead of it? Um, but that's not how, that's not what leaders do. What leaders do is focus on the job at hand and focus on what needs to get done and put the consumer first, put their mission first and let that pave the way. Um, so I think it's a balance, you know, use it to make you keep, keep that kind of like fire, fire under your butt. Um, but don't get too distracted by it um, so that you lose your sense of self and that you lose your focus on what you uniquely are able to and need to do. Um, and I think that comes with finding your voice and finding your purpose as a brand. Do you think Lyft has helped you become clearer on your purpose and in your differentiators and your distinctive qualities? Has it helped sharpen that for you? You know, that's an interesting question. I, I think, yes, in many ways. I think we've had to kind of think about what does what does not only rideshare mean as a category, um, you know, why does this exist? What does this mean for the world? Um, but, but what does Uber mean as a part of that? And I think we're still defining that. You know, we are we are such a young brand in the grand scheme of things. And I like to say we're kind of like in our teenage years right now and sort of finding, finding our voice to that end. Um, and I do think, you know, having, um, having such a strong competitor helps you kind of ask those existential questions about, you know, what differentiates us from one another? Um, why would somebody open Uber first? Why would they only use Uber? Um, and how do we start, you know, um, how do we start thinking about better defining what would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. That relationship with the consumer. What have you learned from people who do choose you first and who are you know, who use you maybe exclusively or, or choose you first? What is it that customers, consumers tell you about you that has been interesting and helpful for you? Yeah, you know, I think it, I think it comes back to the product. I hate to kind of keep pointing it in that direction, but ultimately, you know, it's they're looking for the two things that we find are most important to consumers, which should be no surprise to anybody, is um, price and ETA. So how quickly can my Uber get there? How quickly can the driver be there? And um, how much am I spending? 
So that's your average consumer. Um, so I think there's there's a balance of that. You know, if we only focused on price, it would be a race to the bottom. Um, so I think it's, you know, finding a price that makes sense um, and finding a price that, you know, makes sense for both us and the driver um, as well as but really focusing on how do we make ourselves really reliable. So those ETAs are lower, um, that we have a, a product that, you know, from a service standpoint is always um, delivering on our value prop. And um, how do we think about making sure that the service is there? And I think, you know, layering into that, because I view that as kind of table stakes of just, you know, getting our product right so that the experience that we're promising is the experience that we're delivering. And um, so I think that that's table stakes. And then I think, you know, on top of that, and what we're kind of actively working on now is how, how do we think about something like loyalty, you know, both we and Lyft have loyalty programs, but how do we how do we think about building that out further so that there, there is incentive to take Uber, um, you know, in a similar way that you think about your airline, I think most people have an airline of choice, we've talked about that. Um, and there are many ways that you can drive loyalty, it can both be through, you know, amazing loyalty programs with great partners or great points and tiering structures. And, um, but it can also be through, you know, just great experiences and some of those, you know, kind of stop in your track type interactions, like the one that you told me about that you've had with Delta, which has just stuck with me since you told me because it was such an amazing brand experience. Yeah. I shared with Jenny, you know, before this podcast, we were, we were having a meeting in New York city actually. And I told her that my mother passed away recently and I had to change all my travel arrangements and, and, uh, and I was doing that with Delta and within, I don't know, 10 to 12 hours, a beautiful flower arrangement was sent to me by Delta. You know, uh, sad about my loss. And I mean, somebody took the initiative to do that. Uh, that's the power of, of a culture. That's the power of a purpose. It's a power of being customer obsessed. So that's the case that Jenny and I were talking about. And, and I'm a real Delta brand zealot. <laughs> And that's, you know, just, and that's one reason why, I mean, it was a zealot before that, but they, they really do care. And, uh, and I feel that, I mean, I've, I've been riding them during this coronavirus and, and they've been wonderful, you know, just wonderful. So anyway, that's the story that Jenny was referring to. Let's stay on this topic of, you know, brand passion and brand purpose. And I love your brand purpose and I just want to read it for our listeners you know, your purpose is to ignite, I think I had this right, to ignite opportunity by setting the world in motion. And the way you will do this, your mission in doing that is to make transportation as reliable as running water for everyone, everywhere. I mean, that's an incredible ambition, which I love it. I mean, it's huge. So I want you, you have 22,000 employees, you know, 4 million drivers. So, wow, how, how do you take that wonderful, ambitious you know, world-changing purpose and bring that to life with your, you know, the people who are bringing your brand to life every day, the drivers, your team, how do you activate it? It's a great question, you know, and I think it, it's a, it is ambitious. And I think that is very much so a part of Uber's DNA is to take this big, bold, audacious idea and, attack it and, you know, go after it. And I think that's, that's where Uber was born from of this kind of crazy idea that was hatched during a snowstorm in Paris and saying, Oh my gosh, let's make this a reality. Let's reimagine, um, how our cities could look and how people could move. Um, I think what we, 
you know, that, that mission is evolving and that purpose is evolving as we think about layering in things like Uber Eats and Uber Health and Jump, um, which is our bikes and scooters platform. Um, but I think at the core of it all is movement. And how do we just, how do we enable that, that sense of movement, be it for the driver or um, that is taking, you know, advantage of this economic opportunity to earn and provide supplemental income um, and using that movement um, to, to, um, to help feed their families and so forth, as well as how do we think about, you know, opening our cities up so that people are able to, you know, experience them in ways that they hadn't before. So how we activate that, you know, I think a piece of it is we need to feel it as employees ourselves. You mentioned, you know, we have I think even over 22,000 employees, corporate employees now. And, um, and we need to feel it. We need to feel that that opportunity is there within our corporate culture. So I think that that to me is table stakes. And we're, we're really trying to infuse that energy and passion um, within our way of working internally. Um, and then I think another piece of it is, again, to that end, you know, and you, you mentioned um, which actually is, you know, was an earlier mission statement of ours, which was transportation as reliable as running water everywhere and for everyone. Um, and, you know, we've evolved kind of a bit past that, um, given we've moved on to other things beyond transportation. Um, but I think the idea there being reliability and how do we be there? How do we make sure we are always there for the people that need us? And, um, you know, I think we have a lot of exciting stuff in the hopper that I don't want to don't want to give away too much of now but to think about how we can show that um over the over the coming year what kinds of brands do you admire that have a purpose that you can be learned from and be inspired by when you talk about incredible reliability I mean is it is it companies and services and products like Google and others that you emulate I mean what who gives you inspiration I think Google is one Google's sort of helpful mantra of, you know, always being there to be helpful for their users. Um, I, I just love the simplicity of that. It's so clear. It's so poignant. Um, you know, Google definitely is one that catches my eye. Um, Airbnb, um, with their belong message, I think is really powerful and feels very, very organic to who they are as a brand. I think that's something that, you know, the the purposes that feel the most natural to me, I think, are the ones that are the strongest. And I think that's where Google comes in. It's when you need help, when, you, when you're curious about something, they're there to help you. It's that simple. So I think that it comes down to simplicity for me, um, for the ones that really stand out. I think Airbnb is one that I always go back to for, for whatever reason. Um, and then I, I think as well, yeah, Google's a great example. Um, I think there's bits and pieces of, you know, as we think about the way that Target approaches, you know, as they think about their guests coming into their their stores, um, you know, I, I love the idea behind that and the hospitality sense behind that. Um, so I think also thinking about what is your relationship with your consumer is something that that we're always looking for. And how do we build that? And how do we build that trust? We did a podcast with Rick Gomez, the CMO of Target, and he talked about, uh, I asked him, how does he keep close to his customers? What are his rituals? And he talked about spending three to four hours with their customers in their homes, talking about their homes, talking about all the categories, walking through the homes, getting to know them. So a really, really deep dive with customers that were not like him, 
you know, so he could stay really in touch with their hopes, their dreams, their feelings, you know, about everything and, and, where, where, and where's Target's role in all of that. So wonderful ritual and, 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 more, and a huge signal to his team and to the company at large about the importance of the guests. Oh, it's so important. It's so important to have that experience. You know, when I, when I joined Uber, part of my job was actually, you know, answering customer support tickets. And I had a quota that I had to hit every single day. It was just a part of our DNA back then of being that close to the customer that all of us were on the front lines and answering support every single day as we scaled and grew, that became impossible. Um, but I've really tried to hold on to that with my team. You know, I, I myself am an Uber driver and I take trips and give trips all the time. Um, and I think, you know, I need to put myself behind the wheel to understand that experience, to understand, you know, what are the emotions that you're feeling when you're requesting a new trip? What are the pain points that you're feeling when you're, when you're, um, when you're picking somebody up or when you're dropping somebody off. Um, you know, I experience Uber as a rider every single day, of course, but I think getting that full experience is really important. And my team is baked in, you know, half day every single week for either or every single month for either driving, spending time shadowing one of our support representatives at our green light hubs, which are our driver support centers, um, attending focus groups with consumers. We've done similar to what he spoke to there, you know, actually going into the homes of riders and drivers and spending time with them, understanding the role that Uber plays within their life. It just, you know, it's something that it, it can be so easy to uh, deprioritize when you have a million fires that you feel like you're putting out every single day. But I'm so grateful every single time afterwards that I made the time to do it because it makes me better at my job. I love that you drive. Or, or what, what kind of driver are you? Are you, are you a chatty one? Do you tell the people in the, in your, in your car, your vehicle that you're, that you work for Uber? I mean, what, how do you, how do you do that? I, I kind of, I read the room a little bit, I'd say, um, you know, I see if they want to talk to me and then if they do, I'm happy to, um, I, I love to provide amenities. So I always come stacked with <laughs> gum and water and on the chargers and everything like that. Um, and, you know, it depends on, on the individual. If I, you know, chat with them about, you know, I work for Uber. I do love to have that conversation just to get the feedback. Um, and, you know, I've even gone so far a couple of times I had this like an index card that I put on the back on the seat of like things that I'd love to chat about. And it was right. Um, you know, like your experience with the Uber pool and, you know, other things like that, that are just on my mind. Um, it's just fun, you know, and every, every trip is different. And I think that's something that I really enjoy when I'm behind the wheel is just getting to see and meet so many different people. And, and, you know, at some, some want to chat, some don't, and you just kind of read the room and go with it. My son between, um, he, he started business school at Michigan and he quit his job and he had a few months before he started school. He, he drove Uber and he, he drove it in Cincinnati and, you know, he spent, he grew up here basically. He lived all over the place. We moved a lot, but he just felt he learned so much about the city, about tourists, about, about people who lived in the city and different neighborhoods in the city. And, and, you know, he read the room as well, but he really loved, he got to, he just felt like he understood the city in a different way than he ever had. Yeah, it's so true. I think some of, 
I similarly, you know, I, I typically drive, I live in New York city now, but I'm from the Boston area and, um, I love driving back around Boston and just seeing towns I'd never seen before neighborhoods I didn't even know existed. And it really kind of introduces you to parts, parts of your own backyard that you didn't know were there. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's a huge benefit. And maybe you should talk about that a bit more. So listen, you, you referred a minute ago to uh, some of the other products you have. You know, you've moved beyond transportation, Uber Health and Uber Eats and uh, Jump. And, and I, you know, I'm really curious, and I think our listeners would be too, how you make those decisions. You know, you have this ambitious purpose. You have this, you know, red hot brand that created an enormous amount of, of loyalty in a, in a short period of time and awareness, which you spoke about. But when you sit down with your leadership team, how do you pick where you're going to put your bets and your resources and, and, and in a way, how you're flankering this brand? How do you make those choices? It's a great question. You know, so it, it all starts with the consumer. And I think understanding your consumer, understanding what needs you fill and what needs you don't fill, but maybe are positioned to, um, is that's where you have to begin, right? You know, it's, we can think about and look at all the TAMs and all the data in the world, um, in a, in a conference room, but, um, ultimately, you know, you have to see where the insights lead you. I think for us, you know, that, that has taken many different forms into both these big categories that, um, that are, you know, massive, Massive and big opportunities like Uber Eats that are highly competitive and a really big industry, as well as things that are simple. Like we recently launched something in a in a number of U.S. cities um, called Uber Pet, where it was just driven by a consumer insight of a lot of people have dogs, they like to travel with them, and it's kind of a as a dog owner myself, it can feel like kind of a hassle when you request an Uber. You feel like you should call the driver, give them a heads up. Some drivers. Um, are okay with taking a non-service animal pet and some aren't. Um, and so then maybe your driver isn't, you have to re-request. It just adds kind of like this obstacle. So it's not a huge category, but it's a consumer need that we could easily fill. And we weren't. So we added a toggle in the app that you can say you have a pet and drivers are able to say they're comfortable with accepting pets into their vehicle. And it's simple things like that that just kind of give us a little bit of that edge of how do we stay ahead? How do we kind of create this experience that people didn't even know they needed? Um, But it comes from listening to your consumer first and foremost. And then, of course, you have to prioritize how you spend your time from there. And I think you weigh that with the potential benefit back to the business, but also weigh that with the potential benefit back to the consumer and the customer. And, you know, can that grow their loyalty and engagement to your platform over time? Where do your where do the ideas come from? Your consumer focused or do they come from your team all over the company? Do they come from the drivers? I mean, how do you source the the ideas? All of the above, (laughs) honestly. Um, You know, we do, of course, um, host a number of different um, brand health um, focus groups and, and, um, you know, field a number of um, uh, research for qualitative insights. And we're able to sometimes surface through that. Um, I think some of it we're able to surface through our support channels as well. People writing in and asking for things that might not exist. some of it can come from employees just seeing an opportunity and, and, you know, we try to 
hold on to that entrepreneurial spirit that is what birthed Uber in the first place um, and encourage that type of, you know, how do we think about the world a little bit differently and how do we look for those opportunities that don't exist and create a culture that it's okay to surface those crazy ideas and then explore them and, and see what's there. And sometimes there's nothing there and sometimes there is. And, you know, a lot of what we do is test and scale. So Uber Pet as you know, an ex a early example um, it's something we tested in just a few, you know, mid-sized markets and saw it got a positive reaction. And, you know, then we scaled it to a number of other major cities and um, it just launched in Australia and New Zealand, I think, last week. Um, so how do we think about, you know, also, you know, an, a bit of an incubator approach that we can test this in a few markets and then see if it's working and grow, go from there? This is an impossible question, but in any given week, how many tests, how many tests are going on in Uber? I would say... Lots. There are lots. Um, yeah, it, uh, you know, hundreds, certainly. And I think, you know, in the U.S., in the U.S. alone, probably hundreds. Um, but, you know, keeping in mind, we are a global company and we, we have a large global footprint. So there's products that exist outside the U.S. that, you know, like we have um, Ubermoto in Paris. Um, we have a number of, you know, Uber um I'm going, I think it's Uber Tuk Tuk or Uber Rickshaw in India. You know, there's so many different sort of tests that are, um, that we're exploring in other markets that um, I can't even speak to. That's why it's so impossible. <laughs> we talked when we were having coffee in New York a few weeks ago, we talked about culture a lot. And we talked about this issue of testing and experimenting and dealing with failure. And you talked a bit about, you know, that's a tough concept at every company and it's a tough concept at your company. So how do you, what are your insights for our listeners about you're a very, you're an experimentation oriented culture, you're an entrepreneurial culture. Uh, you have to accept failure and you have to make failure part of how you do business. It's, it's, a, it's, an, it's an age old concept. We've all wrestled with it as leaders. What are some of your insights to keep uh, fear of failure at bay and to keep people stretching and trying and experimenting? It's a great question. You know, and I think it's gotten, I'll be honest, I think it's gotten harder as we've gotten bigger. And I think, you know, that was very, you know, that, that part of that entrepreneurial culture that I referenced is, you know, entre entrepreneurs fail every single day. I, my brother's one of them, I know. Um, and, you know, when we were smaller and didn't have the microscope on our business or all the attention, it was easier to kind of bounce back from those failures. Um, so I think it's, you know, balancing that as we've, as we've scaled and grown and maybe being a bit more thoughtful and, you know, trying to maybe test a little bit more in advance so that we're being a bit more, um, bit more strategic as we approach work. And it's not just kind of throwing things against the wall and seeing what sticks. Um, so I think there's there's a bit of that upfront planning that you need to do to ideally kind of like see around the corner a little bit, expect failure in some cases and be willing to kind of take that take that hit for the for the greater good. Um, but I think it's also about just having a culture that embraces that, understands that, you know, learns from something and moves on. Um, I think I've really tried to instill in my team the um, growth mindset, which I'm sure you're familiar with, um, and feeling like, you know, we are constantly on this learning journey together. And I am learning too. We are all learning and up-leveling. And the only way you can learn is through trying things. And um, 
that's that's how I've grown my career. That's how I've gone to where I am. You know, a lot of my job I've had to learn on the fly. And I think you have to do that. And that, that means risk taking sometimes. And I want them to know, you know, I have their back if those risks fall through. So you've been at Uber six years. You've had seven roles in those six years. So you've been with the company for two thirds of its existence, really. So what what enticed you to join? What was it about the team, the culture, the idea, the concept, the brand that took you into this relatively new company at that time? Yeah. You know, I think it was, it was a really interesting time for me in my career. I wasn't, I was kind of at this nexus that I wasn't really sure where I wanted to go. Um, I had worked at, you know, a few big companies and spent some, uh, some time in an agency and was just I like hadn't found my footing yet, I suppose, my professional footing. And so like most people in their kind of mid late 20s who don't know what they want to do with their life, I immediately thought I'm just going to go back to school. <laughs> I'm just going to mm-hmm. I'm going to go get an MBA and figure it out from there. So I was studying for the GMAT and Uber came on my radar just kind of through happenstance. They were we were doing this promotion with Goodwill at the time that we would come pick up clothes you wanted to donate and bring them to Goodwill on your behalf. Um, and so I participated in this promotion. They came, picked up the clothes I wanted to donate and a light bulb kind of went off. I saw they were hiring for a marketing manager in New York. And I just, you know, I knew right when I saw the posting, it was like a light bulb went off and I was like, I need this job. I just, I could, something clicked into place. And it was really interesting because my interviews, it, you know, they were, I'd gone from working at these big companies that were in you know, big fancy offices on Madison Avenue and Sixth Avenue in New York. So you worked for Fox Networks and Undertone, a digital agency, right? That's right. And Uber, when I joined, was working out of basically a townhouse in Queens. Um, and I went out in like a full, like, you know, fancy work outfit and everybody's in like jeans and hoodies and everything. And I, and I was like, what is this place? But, um, but you could just feel the energy. It was, you know, this like really magnetic energy from the moment that I entered the door. People were so excited and passionate about what they were working on. They were, you know, really living and breathing Uber at that time. And it was just starting to find product market fit. I joined right around for context um, when Uber was just launching Uber X. So at that time, it was, you know, really a premium product. All that we had in market was Uber Black. And um, so we were just sort of tapping into this entirely new world that um, and you could just feel that excitement, that ambition and that energy. And it just felt like I'd, you know, kind of found a place that I belonged that was sort of matching the ambition and energy that I wanted to pour into something. Um, And, you know, of course, I, I enjoyed all my conversations with the team at that time. And I could just feel that in every conversation with them. So I was thrilled to be able to, to jump aboard. So you've had these seven roles in Uber in six years, and your latest is the head of U.S. marketing, right? So you're sort of the CMO of Uber in the U.S. and Canada. So tell me, you're about nine months into this role, and you were promoted you know, in place within the culture that you're a part of. And so... And you went from being, you know, a peer to a boss of some of these people on your team. So what was that like being promoted in place and then having people who were your friends and peers reporting to you? 
Was it weird? Was it fine? Was it cool? Was it easy? I mean, where did, where did you start? How did, how did you start up? Oh, it, it was a little funny. It always just feels, you know, a, a little different changing that dynamic and that relationship. Um, but I think you just have to be honest about it and like speak to each other like humans and just kind of acknowledge the elephant in the room, talk through where there might be some, you know, frustration or um, hurt feelings or anything of that nature and just um, call it out and and have that open discussion. You know, for this particular transition into this role, um, I think it was it was actually went quite smoothly. In many ways, there's some something to be said for having that foundation of trust with a team built in. And I think that was the case in this transition. You know, it, it, change is never easy. I've been through so much of it at Uber, as you can tell by my, you know, seven roles in six years. Um, and that's part of, part of you know, um, in our DNA in some ways, it's just kind of constant change and iteration. Um, and But I think, you know, part of it is you build these really trusting foundations and relationships so that when I did move into this role, we were almost, almost had a head start compared to others that, you know, were hiring somebody new or, um, because we already had that foundation of openness and trust understood a bit of how each other worked. So I think leaning into the benefits, addressing where there might be some negatives and, um, just moving past it. You know, I think that's one thing I've really learned from being at a, a company that has grown so rapidly and does, has experienced so much change is, not like wallowing in change for too long, but looking ahead and focusing on, you know, how do we, how do we march forward? How do we find the positive here? How do we, how do we get back to work? I think people really like to work is interesting, you know, like really like to dig in and solve problems. So instead of kind of wallowing in your, your own frustrations, I think just finding some problems to solve gets people focused and energized. Working together. So what do you do? What do you do, Jenny? And as the head of marketing for Uber US, what's the job? I mean, tell us about your work. I mean, if you have to had to put it into a pie chart, what would that pie chart look like? Oh my gosh, um, so much. Uh, I would say, you know, the the crux of my role is really to generate demand for our products and services. Um, you know, through that, as we talked about, you know, we, we do in the U S in particular, you know, fairly developed and, but how do we think about expanding use cases? How do we think about, um, our product mix between Uber X and Uber black and Uber comfort and Uber pool, um, to bikes and scooters. Um, and then I think the other piece of it is, um, trust and reputation. How do we think about, growing brand trust? How do we think about strengthening the relationship with our consumers? How do we think about um, our relationship with drivers and the, the folks that earn on our platform every single day? Um, so I think, you know, I would say that pie chart, you know, that that might be over overly simplistic because my day to day, you know, isn't, isn't quite as perfectly bucketed as I would like. But um, ultimately, those are a lot of the problems I'm trying to solve is just, you know, how do we how do we grow and increase the usage of our products and platform? Um, and then how do we strengthen the relationship that we have with the consumers that use us every day? What's your favorite part of the role? My team. Definitely. I, I work with such smart people um, who challenge and inspire me every single day. I think I am such a people oriented and people driven person. And I think that's why, you know, uh, marketing has really stuck. Um, 
I just, I, I love the people that I work with and I love, you know, doing work that serves people. I think that's what it comes down to for me. What part of your job drives you nuts? Uh, budgeting. (laughs) 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 Um, I have never been a math person. It's ironic. My, I have come from a family of engineers, MIT engineers at that. And I am just not a math person. And I, I love my finance team, but it's not my thing. So you surround yourself with smart people who are far better at it than you are and pray for the best. (laughs) Jenny, uh, you know, I, I would, I could, we could go on for another hour, but I want to spend the last part of this podcast on what, you know, what I, I call a rolling thunder round, where I just sort of get you to answer a few questions that I think are interesting for our listeners to get insights to how you see the world and how you see your role. And the first one is you went to college at George Washington University in downtown D.C., and you studied political communication and women's studies. Why? Why did you choose those fields? Well, when I was in high school, I was very type A and very driven. And I wanted to do one of, wanted to do one of two things. One was be the first female president of the United States or be their campaign manager. So I was very politically inclined back then. Um, and you know, needed to get myself to DC. So I looked, I went early decision to GW. They were the only school in the country that offered this political communication program and um, just wanted to be in the heart of the action. I obviously changed paths, um, but um, I'm so glad that I had that experience. And um, women's studies, I just sort of stumbled into, I was always really interested. You know, you, I, I always loved history and, um, you know, really enjoyed all my history coursework, but a lot of history and I, there's some crazy stat that I just saw the other day is centered around men. And I felt like I wasn't learning about the role of female in, in history as much. And, um, I took a lecture my freshman year with this incredible professor of women's studies and just thought it was so fascinating. So I, I, um, ended up taking on women's studies as a minor, um, more from just a passion standpoint, but I'm so glad I did it. Cause it just kind of opened my mind to feminist theory. You still might be president, Jenny. Don't give up. <laughs> really? I'll get behind you. I'll run your campaign. <laughs> so anyway, um, you were, you are also in your first year of marriage, right? Yeah. You got married. This is last year was a big year. You got promoted. You got married. So was planning the wedding tougher than running marketing at Uber? Uh, oh, no, (laughs) I'm going to say no, only because I had the best wedding planner in the world. Um, so she was incredible, amazing, took care of everything. Anybody who's getting married, I didn't think I needed a planner because I am a very big planner myself. Get one. You need it, especially if you're working in a, an intense job. <laughs> so did you use Uber on your honeymoon? Um, we did. We actually did, yes, um, to get to from the airport. We went to Bora Bora, though, and Uber's not available in Bora Bora, oh, nice. unfortunately. Nice. So. Did you get married in Boston? Is that where you got married? Up in Vermont, actually. Vermont, oh, nice. At this, yeah, on Lake Champlain. Beautiful. So what's a brand besides Uber that you would really miss if it went away? Um, 
Uh, I would really, a lot of them. Um, I would really miss Apple. I use all Apple products. I would really miss Apple if it went away. Mm -hmm. I'm dialed into you from an Apple product right now. So that'd be a problem. Yeah. So what are your rituals to keep you fresh, creative, you know, engaged? What, What do you do that others could learn from? Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's really important to get outside of, you know, in my case, the Uber bubble, um, as I call it. I I think that's a lesson I had to learn the hard way of just, um, you know, I don't always prioritize, you know, going to events or networking with other companies um, because I just feel like I have so much to do in my role and in the office. Um But every time I do and every time I, you know, make the effort or make the time to go hear from other marketers, to go learn from other industries, I leave feeling, you know, like my eyes have been opened. So I love listening to your podcast as well because it's an easy way to do it. Um, And I think the other thing, too, is, you know, I'm I it's so important to, you know, have passions that are outside of your work as well, that, you know, are something that, you know, just making sure that you aren't all encompassed in that. And I think that's easy to do when you're so passionate about your job and what you're doing and the mission and you love the people that you work with. Um, But, you know, I, my husband and I was sharing with Jim recently bought a cabin upstate and we're renovating it ourselves. And it's just like really fulfilling to do something with my hands that is totally unrelated to Uber. Um, and I, I find, uh, you know, after those weekends of just, you know, digging and working hard, being covered in dust and paint, um, I come back feeling so refreshed, strangely. What's the weirdest thing that's ever been in a, an Uber lost and found? Um, mice to feed somebody's pet snake, I think, is the weirdest thing oh. that I've heard of. I know. Isn't that gross? <laughs> that driver is a saint. <laughs> I know. I know. There's actually a really funny list um, that if you Google Uber lost and found um, every year we release like the most frequently lost and found things as well as some of the craziest. So it's it's a good read. I recommend it. Excellent. So uh, Uber ice cream or Uber puppies for you? Puppies. Puppies. I'm a big dog person. So last question. Again, I hate to end this, but who else would you like to listen to in the CMO podcast? Because you are a listener. Um, I would love, have you interviewed Lorraine from Google yet? No, but, and we should, I've, I've interviewed her in Cannes when she was marketer of the year at the Cannes festival. I interviewed her in front of my class and she was wonderful, but you're the second or third person who suggested it. So we'll reach out to her. We'll get her on the program. Jenny, thank you in these, in these crazy times when we're dealing with the national emergency of coronavirus to spend an hour with us. Our listeners will love it. I loved it. You were very generous uh, with your insights and time. And so thank you so very much. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it, Jim. That was my conversation with Jenny Avalon Lewis. I loved her honesty in this conversation. She's just such a natural leader. I asked her about her favorite part of the job. She says it was her team. She spoke so interestingly about the purpose of Uber and why it gets into the categories it gets into. She talked about customer obsession, how she stays close to customers, how she drives Uber at least once a month so she can stay close to her customers. This was just a remarkable conversation about leadership 
and humility and empathy and humanity. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.